Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. talk to you after so long it's been i think we last spoke in december way back it was a while ago yeah because i remember I, I was going to uh berlin and that was in february wow it's amazing how time well everything going on yeah <laughs> i'm not that amazed it's like the longest two days of my life in 10 years at the same time like it feels like no time has passed and nothing but time has passed you know what i mean i do know what you mean i was just talking to a friend today about one of the many effects of the virus and we were trying to decide if it's making um, time disappear and go real fast or, or opposite slow. And we, I, reached, I came up with the theory that the pandemic is actually making time fly by. And the reason for that is that – see what you think of this theory. Um, normally in life we have occasions and breaks, like a break from Monday, work week, Saturday weekend, anniversaries, graduations, these kinds of special occasions – what the pandemic do has done is it's made every day and morning and night all the same. It flattens everything. So it yeah. really destroys occasion. And so what occasions do is they slow time down. It's human's way of actually – this is a bizarre theory, I know, but it's a hum human way of actually taking a pause artificially. And we don't have that now. So it's making everything really fast. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because like, it's like, well, six months have gone by, but they've also been like excruciating it. Like I can't wrap my brain around time anymore. So yeah. I just kind of stopped. Oh yeah. I just let the day happen. Oh, yeah. well, that's <laughs> for the best. Yeah. For the best. But, um, enough about that. So what did you, uh, well, we we're going to, I, my plan was to follow your system on your made for TV mayhem podcast. And I love your system, and I think it applies for our movie, which is Intimate Strangers from 1977. Yes. So, Amanda, would you like to start as if we were on your show and you were the host? And uh, Yeah, I don't have a synopsis or anything like that, like a plot breakdown. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, let me think of how to start. I mean, so... Uh, Intimate Strangers is a, is a pretty important film. It's one that I'm ashamed to say I hadn't seen before. Um, and I think 
I probably didn't see it because it looked like a downer mm. and um and it is yeah. that's not to say that it's not a great film there were there are plenty of movies that are very downbeat uh, mm. but serve a purpose and if they don't serve a purpose socially like this one does maybe they serve a purpose artistically who's to say but yeah. um but like a case of rape uh intimate strangers is doing something really important by bringing the dialogue of a really important and sort of hushed domestic issue into the forefront of um, our brains and into the dialogue. It essentially became water cooler talk, right? So, um, and it allowed women um, in these positions to maybe feel like there was opportunities to do, to remove themselves from these situations. And if not, at least to feel like somebody understood them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say about the movie. What would you say about it? Well, I'd say a lot. Um, well, I think it's a it's a great film, and I think if we're going to talk about John Moxie, it's one of his best films. I think. I really do think that. I think he really achieved something with this one. Something. something yeah, he did. Special and above and beyond his normal output. Well, have you ever seen Nightmare in Madam County? Yes. So, okay, so that's an exploitation movie mm-hmm. aesthetically, I would say. But I think at its heart, it's also dealing with a lot of really dark issues. And some of his movies do do that. Um, that's the one that came to mind instantly because it is dealing with race issues and mm-hmm. um, and in a way domestic issues because while they're in prison, the prison is treated like a domestic space, right? Yep. And it's also about sort of like the tyranny um, against women, right? And like what kind of power can like these sort of evil, highly placed white men do? And so I think I think a lot of TV movies are coded in different ways. Like another one that comes to mind is Through Naked... Now, these aren't dealing with the same kind of mm-hmm. deep social issues, but something like Through Naked Eyes mm-hmm. is also positioning um, women as uh, sexually autonomous mm-hmm. right and so like so like i would say john will moxie made a lot of really interesting movies that probably if you wanted to look at them in a different way would probably say something interesting this one is overtly doing it and in, and it's um maybe not as good as but probably as important as a case of rape oh it's interesting that's interesting so yeah so yeah i do think i mean he's a consistent director clearly Yes. I just think yes. there's something about the performances of this. Dennis Weaver, Sally Struthers, Larry Hagman. Um, you know what I mean? And there's something about the direction, everything coming together. And the way the story is told that it just for me is utterly unique. Oh, yeah. And this is probably one of Dennis Weaver's best performances. And I mean, he's had a lot of incredible performances. But this uh, he's walking a real fine line in this movie because he's not a very likable person, but he manages it in some places, some places not so much to maintain a sympathy. Mm-hmm. And that's real hard to do. Yeah. And um, he's not painted in black and white at all. And, and I think he walks that line uh, tremendously well. And Larry Hagman, too. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the strengths of the film. In fact, it humanizes everybody. And it yeah. Makes it, and, it, and I actually even like it better than The Burning Bed, believe hmm. it or not. But I can see I, that. I love, I love this film. I think the film is a masterpiece, and I, I hold it, hold it, hold it high. Um, well, tell me how you came to this film. I really don't know. That's a really good question. I really, really don't know. I don't know where... It just spoke to me. I, th- I think I think uh, I saw it probably in syndication. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, probably that would have been in the 90s sometime, I think. Um, and it really, it, it, it really, um, I thought it was just great film. Again, I actually, in 2012, I wrote an essay on, on it and I liked it so much. Oh. And I go into great detail about how, about it's, um, about the scene of Larry Hagman and, um, you know, the two coworkers picking up those women and then the, and, yeah. and Time Daly, I should have mentioned Time Daly's really extraordinary in this too. Yes, she is. Uh, she was nominated for an Emmy for this, so. That's excellent. That's excellent. Do you have any other uh, information about that? I know that you're really good with analytics and, and, um, and. You know, there's not a lot of information about this movie, and it surprised me because, so like when Case of Rape came out, um, it did get a lot of press, and it was an interesting time because it came out, actually, it actually postdates another rape movie that was made for TV called Cry Rape, I think. Yes. Um, I always get that title mixed up. And um, and they aired about three or so months apart, but Case of Rape was the was the stronger film. Mm-hmm. But they came out in sort of like almost like this vacuum of like it was time, right, to start talking about these issues in real ways. And then a lot of other kind of movies dealing with rape came out but handled them maybe not so delicately. And then as we moved on and understood rape better then then the case of rape type films started coming back and they were stronger but uh, this movie although it did air a year before another movie called battered which is interesting because mm-hmm. the original title of intimate strangers was indeed battered mm-hmm. um but uh um there wasn't a lot of information about this movie at all and it's really hard to find production information about tv movies in general they weren't very well documented unless um somebody did an interview for a newspaper and they and they talked about it or um sometimes you see a production note in variety and you can kind of get an idea of when it was produced and there was a little bit that came out about this because i think um sally struthers had uh was leaving all in the family at the time mm-hmm. and um and was looking at other episodic work and only half hour episodic. She said she didn't want to do hour long episodics, but I think TV movies were allowing her to kind of spread her wings. And, um, and although Gloria, I think Gloria was raped on all in the family, wasn't she? Um, I have, I, know her. I have to confess ignorance of that. That's something I should know. I think she was because there's that famous episode where her mom almost gets raped and there's oh. a conversation about it later where I think oh, that's right. Gloria that's right. alludes to it. That's right. And so, so in this era, she was making a lot of TV movies. She did Ham hey, Alive, My Husband mm-hmm. is Missing, Intimate Strangers, um, A Gun in the House, which is another mm-hmm. amazing, amazing oh, like film. That? that is probably my favorite. Yeah, that is a good one. That's it's a really intense one. Um, and uh, and then doing things like she, Archie Bunker's Place and All in the Family and then eventually Gloria, right? And so, but I think she, like a lot of uh, actresses from this era who were doing episodes like uh, sitcoms, was using TV movies to find, um, uh, you know, to, to find, mm-hmm. not find, but f- for audiences to see her in a different light. And she did a pretty good job. I don't know that it led to other bigger work for her per se, but she did a lot of solid work in this era. But in terms of, like aside from them just saying that this was a movie she was making sort of as she was thinking about leaving or leaving all in the family, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of information about this movie. And, um, and that's not unusual. So when, um, I write about these, not write about when I podcast or write about these movies, sometimes I find it's maybe better to talk around the movie instead of talking about the movie. And so with something like, 
uh, intimate strangers, it's it's almost like more important to understand the cultural climate of spousal abuse in this era mm-hmm. than than maybe to to understand the film itself, like when it came out and how they got to each other. It's like I don't know any of that information. And right. but but also it might be important to note too, um and I may have talked about this last time I was on your show. I can't I can never remember, but when I lecture, I talk about demographics mm-hmm. and um women were the largest audience um for TV movies. And when I mean largest audience I mean the largest sought-after audience by advertisers and by the networks. And um, so television was always sort of made for women from its creation till today. And um, and so although you saw things that were very male-centric, like Mandrake or The Amazing Spider-Man or something like that, there was a lot of stuff that was dealing with a lot of issues in the domestic space because women in the 70s hadn't yet really set out to to have a life outside of the home and so movies like this and this is the first of its kind as far as i can tell i tried to go back and like on imdb you can actually search by um keywords and plot Mm -hmm. points and you can look up things by the their year of release and this is the only movie that comes up right it's the first one every time you look up spousal abuse domestic abuse um that's and so that's interesting yeah, and so um, so it hadn't really been done before, and it did really well uh, with audiences. It came in at number eight for the week. It ranked at um, it ranked at number eight. It had a Nielsen of twenty four point seven slash forty three, which means almost half of America was watching it oh, wow. on the night it aired. And I think it opened up a real dialogue for people, like a case of rape did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting that it doesn't have the same. Gravitas, I guess, that the other one does. Like, I don't know why this one's lesser remembered because the issue is just as important. But for some reason, it kind of got swept under the carpet. Yet, I think it's had more legitimate home video releases than, than a case of rape. So I don't know why it's like that. But it did have a VHS release. I actually have the old clamshell. VHS release of it. And, um, and it was streaming on Amazon actually recently. So, um, yeah, it's had it's had a home, but um, yeah, but to, like to to talk about the film itself, it's kind of like we'll just have to talk about that era of the telefilm, I guess. Yeah. If that's no, I could I could get it deep into the film. Like, so the first thing you see is this Winnebago, and Dennis Weaver getting all excited about his Winnebago and his kids and making sales, right? And he's, he's saying, "Hey, kids, this Winnebago," and uh, he and his wife had this discussion about money and can you afford it and and and. Um, there's a, there's a kind of, you know, the sun's out. There's a, just a kind of a, it's brilliant because it's sort of, it's sort of, there's a happiness to it. Yeah. So for sure. Um, but see that, see what I'm, see my thing about this movie, I think this, this movie is better than, than a lot of movies. And, and, and I mean that it's artistically better. So in other words, um, it, 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 it constantly undercuts itself. So, you know, there's things about Dennis Weaver that you might find unlikable. And they come out, and then they get withdrawn. And then, and then, they, and then they, they get withdrawn, and then you start to see things from his point of view at work. He's really stressed at work. And you really feel for this character, right? And then you have this moment of violence. It's actually the most explicit moment of violence I've seen in the TV movie, actually, I would, I would argue. When he, when he throws his wife, and it's a lawn scene. It's one of the most disturbing. I think I wrote in my essay that it makes um, 
this The Shining looked like a ghost story, you know, a tepid ghost story. The movie The Shining in comparison. Yeah. I really do think he's that monstrous. And so for me, for Dennis Weaver to do that in reaction, you know, he doesn't sleep with this woman. So, you know, he does this thing that a lot of audiences would consider virtuous. He doesn't go to bed with this, with this woman that he picks up, right? He comes home and yet he starts screaming and he starts beating up on on his wife. It's just, it, it forms a portrait where the audience of this TV movie has to start, I think, doing work. Right. And that's, I would agree. That's the downer aspect of it. But see, to me, that aspect of it makes it, makes the movie not a downer. It makes the movie kind of exciting and kind of um, illuminating because you're having to do work with this, this married couple and these kids. And it's just, um, uh, it's very different than Paul Lamatt and Burning Bed. I love Paula Matt. Burning Bed's a wonderful film, but there's a more of a one-dimensionality. It doesn't go to the depth. Right. The, and that's the thing. And I, and I have a theory about why that is. So for me, this movie is one of the earliest of its kind. So they hadn't figured everything out yet. Because they hadn't figured everything out yet, it makes the movie better. Yeah, I would agree with that. Isn't that interesting? You can know too much yeah. about something, and then it becomes a yes. formula. And so it's that sweet spot of the era that it came out. And there's that discussion with the attorney where, you know, you know, rape is not considered rape inside marriage. That's even talked about in this film at the end of the film. Right. And just everything is so smart in the writing. But it doesn't – there's no real resolutions. There's no there's – a, there's a therapy session, but you don't get a sense. The movie ends and it's almost like the audience has to do some work. Like the movie respects the audience, the audience's intelligence and um, – that's kind of what I'm trying to say about it. Well, no, I agree. And it does something very special because, so for instance, I think we as a society, if we see a woman getting beat, um, there's a level of sympathy that we hold for her. But if she chooses to go back, then all of a sudden it's like all bets are off and there's something wrong with her. And I think this movie is very delicate in showing that sometimes that does happen. And it's it's like... You have to, when you're talking about like doing the work, you have to check yourself, like how complicit, and case of rape does it too. Um, you have to, you have to ask these questions about yourself, like you're complicit in what society does to these women, right? And so like, then you have to question, why do I do that? Why am I, why am I um, judging these women who go back? instead of trying to support them and help them through this. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so, and the way it ends, you're never quite sure if they're going to get back together or not. And I think that's really important because yeah. they had, they say at the beginning, they clarify that he had been abusive before, but he had gone several months without hurting her. And so they were already in the middle of a very abusive relationship mm-hmm. and doing their best to work through it. And so we, we get dropped into their life at what seems like an okay time because he, he we think at the beginning, he's doing better financially with his, yeah. um, job and he's coming into this really big account that's going to bring all this money where he can buy this dream Winnebago and she seems touchy but a little bit more able to confront him Right. Mm-hmm. If she's unhappy with something like you get the idea that she actually has somewhat of a backbone and she's learning to use it. And these last mm-hmm. several months, they've somehow navigated these tricky waters together. But then things start to fall apart and it goes right back to, I'm assuming, what it was like for them before we met the, yeah. the characters in the well, film. In that Winnebago scene, she wants to go have a quickie with him in the Winnebago. That's right. And he's totally offended by it. By it. And he's like horrified. And his reaction is really one of horror, and it's interesting. It's a little, little moment. 
um, if you're talking about women going back, that that's what they talk about in that therapy session. Like we have mm-hmm. women is in that scene. Every woman gives a theory. They all talk. So actually the very thing you're discussing gets talked about for like 15 minutes, which is really something. Yeah, there's another movie that kind of does that. Um, maybe not as delicately. Oh, I can't remember. But Meredith Baxter Bernie's in it. Is it The Stranger with My Face? Maybe where um, she finds out she's adopted and she goes to find her mom. And there's a there. I feel like there's a therapy session with kids who've been adults yeah. who are dealing with being adopted. And it's it's a really that's a great that's a great venue. I guess uh, for this. I mean that that see I had forgotten about that, but boom. Amanda Reyes, you came up with that. Meredith Baxter Burning, this scene, that's great. I have to Yeah. <laughs> no, I have to go back and look well, at that because I haven't I think it's that movie, but it's it's like a, that's a really great way. And I, I have a feeling that those scenes are in a lot of things. Like I feel like, and I can't remember it well enough, but this, the couple who wrote this and created Dynasty of all things, and we can talk about that in a second I'd because it's to. really. I'd love to because they're be, brilliant. Yeah. Because there's some problems with it. But like Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic came out before this and they wrote that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there must be therapy sessions in that one. And that was a huge, that was like the number one TV movie or something the year that that aired. And that was dealing with an issue too, that the first of its kind which was teenage alcoholism, which was in the 70s, to my surprise, I just found this out recently, was a very new issue because mm-hmm. we believe that teenagers could be alcoholics because alcoholism is supposed to take years to develop. Wow. And then all these kids with dependency issues were showing up everywhere in the 70s and they couldn't figure out where this epidemic was coming from because yeah. percentage-wise, there were more teenage alcoholics than there were adult alcoholics. And um, and so this movie, Sarah T, tackles that pretty frankly, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to rewatch. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but so they were really good at um, kind of taking these very hot topics and and portraying them in fairly realistic ways, especially mm-hmm. in the venue of television, yeah. where you where you're worried about censorship, right? And they managed to like navigate those waters too, very very delicately, I think. Yeah, but you said you had some problems with what, something they had written. You said that. Yeah, well, well, they created Dynasty, and I'm not uh, a huge Dynasty fan. I've only I seen see. like the first couple seasons, but but I do know that Blake rapes Crystal somewhere in the first couple seasons. I just watched the first couple seasons a couple years ago, uh-huh. and um, and. And then he buys her like a necklace and then it's like the rape is forgotten. And I was shocked and it made me not want to watch the show anymore because Blake Carrington is supposed to be this very heroic, patriarchal, whatever. And it's like, it's like, I can't do this. And so, and I know that's me 2020 and I, I'm not trying to make, if people love Dynasty, I want them to love it. You know, well, it's, I have to confess, I'm, I'm totally Dynasty ignorant. I really, really am. So I pause. So maybe I you have to, yeah, I'm totally Dynasty ignorant. Yeah, I only, I only know these first couple seasons. I'm more Dallas-based. Yeah, um, exactly. JR, who shot JR is more important. Yeah, that's you my know. thing. But like, um, but like, I was shocked when I saw that, and it made it really difficult for me to go back to the series and look at Blake in the way that I think they wanted us to look at him. And so I, I was surprised to see it was the same couple. But they also did a lot of really interesting things. I mean, Sarah T is the one that sticks out to me the most, but they did an adaptation of East of Eden, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, they wrote for like Longstreet and Medical Center wow. and uh, some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just that that really floored me because they have such a... Um, a astute understanding of things in intimate strangers so to see it sort of yeah. you know kind of washed away like that i was yeah. like wow that's surprising well that's a, from my from my limited understanding those kinds of mistakes in character or treatment of rape was common in that era right in script yeah i, I understand it's common in soaps which is something you're an expert on 
yeah, it's problematic in that oftentimes the rapist becomes the romantic hero later on, like Luke Spencer on General Hospital mm-hmm. will be the yeah. prime mm-hmm. example of that. And But at the same time, because soaps are on for so long, mm-hmm. you, the character can develop. Like, for instance, not to get off topic, but Todd Manning on One Life to Live was a serial rapist. Oh, wow. And and it was in a really intense storyline, but the, he was so popular mm-hmm. that they developed him into kind of this romantic kind of leading guy. But because the show was on for so long, it, it took time developing him. And at the end, it, when he'd been on the show for like the character, different actors played him mm-hmm. at different parts. Um, at the end of it, uh, like two decades after the rape of Marty Saybrook, which was the main storyline he came from, um, he sees Marty and um, she said, you know, it's clear she's never gotten over exactly what happened and they talk about it. And so you're looking at 20 years of of fallback from something horrific that happened Mm -hmm. with both perspectives, right? And so that's what makes it okay. Not okay. It's not okay, but that's what makes it more tolerable for me in soaps because Mm -hmm. it's not like it just happens and it's forgotten about as it was on Dynasty and Nighttime Soap, because they are a once-a-week format. Yeah. But on a daytime soap, you can spend years. There's a There was a soap opera, was it called this? I think it was called The Secret Storm, that mm-hmm. is based off of um, the the first season was about a woman who I don't even think is ever in the show. Her She dies in a car accident, and for the first decade of the show or something like that, everything is about what happened because she died to that family. Mm-hmm. And, and how they all fall into these different bad behaviors and destructive things happen and whatever. And so soaps are, are, can really deal with these issues in ways that other things can't, you know. So so we can't, I think it is when you look back, yes, Luke Spencer is not a romantic hero, but that they did deal with it in a number of different ways on the show, which at least gives it some perspective. Yeah, well, it's, it's really totally understandable to me why someone would, would object to a whole bunch of things. In commercial narratives, in general, because I think commercial narratives, by by virtue of being commercial narratives, have problems anyhow. Sure, if that makes any sense. I don't know if that. So I think so. Yeah. What I what I mean is that, um, you know, like a commercial narrative, like *Intimate Strangers*, is sort of taking people that are supposed to be every person. So Sally Struthers is supposed to be a suburban woman, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Tyne Daly is supposed to be an independent architect woman who's her best friend. They make jokes about how hot they thought Dennis Weaver was in his youth and all this. And there's a kind of a universality to it. Like there's something the audience right. can identify, you know, this is your best friend. Those are like types in society. So really, really popular commercial narratives like Intimate Strangers – that's their stock and trade are these kind of very universalizable, almost yes. allegorical types. Now, it's shorthand, right? Shorthand. So that we know where we are. Right. Now, that's, that's actually the brilliance of them as art forms. That's also the vice. So, I could, so, so this is the Libra in me. That's both what's wonderful about them. It's also what's wrong with commercial narrative. It's both a vice and a virtue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree with you. I'm really fascinated by that because when I did the commentary for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, one of the things that I mentioned in it, and it stood out to me watching the movie over and over again for the commentary, was that Jim Hutton's character, we don't know what he does for a living. We just know that he has an office job of some sort with some responsibility. And he throws out these names, and I can't remember the names, but he's like, you know, Smitty needs the account on Thursday. (laughs) And even though we don't know who Smitty is or what the account 
it consists of, yeah. we understand where he is in that place and time, right? And so, and it's the it's the absolute most shorthand you could possibly have, you know, to to get you to up to speed on who Jim Hutton is. And and I loved it. It's like two sentences where he literally talks about these really generic named people with these really generic accounts. And mm-hmm. and yet I fully understand the whole situation. And so I'm really fascinated by because um, TV movies do it really well. Oh yeah. And um and you're right, they do have to because um TV movies come into our living rooms, uh, a lot of TV movie filmmakers and producers were looking to um, sort of reflect mm-hmm. the everyday lives of people, right? It was more attractive to them. And, and so, um, and people would relate to it instantly. So especially when you had those early TV movies that were like 74 mm-hmm. minutes long, you just have to drop them into that right. little universe. And there's no better way to do it than to just make them look like the person watching the film. Right. And so, so there's a lot of shorthand in TV movies and I love it. And I agree with you, it can be its vice as well. And that's really oh, I, I, interesting. I, I, when I, when I, yeah, when I say vice, I mean something very particular. I mean vice only if your point of view is wanting to re, remake the wheel. In other words, right. it's, a vice, well, if, it's a vice if you're like saying the avant-garde and you want to create like a totally new kind of movie. Then it's a vice. But it's, all, but it's not, possibly but it, yeah. a vice though because you do have to follow a certain pattern and sometimes you get stuck in the blueprint and don't know what to do yeah. that makes it stand out, right? And so I, I could see it being a vice that way too. Yeah, but that's a that's a very narrow definition of vice. That doesn't make it. I mean, there's something. You know, there's, oh, no. there's to me nothing more beautiful. If you do something really beautifully that perfectly captures something, and so you know, this my my podcast is called Journey of an Esthete. After all, right? I see this aesthetically. So for me, I'm totally moved by this movie with Dennis Weaver. I'm totally moved. I'm just devastated by it. And I feel like I learned something from it about being human, about a marriage. And it's just because the the movie takes the time to go really deep into these people's lives. And it's just, um, it's just really what, to me, the whole point of the, the thing. Oh yeah, no, I yeah. I agree. It's 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 very nuanced. It makes me think. There's a movie you I don't know if you like it or not, but it came out I think in the late '80s or early '90s called Family Sins oh. with James Ferentino. Have you seen that? I have seen it. I have seen that. that- that reminds me of this film in it's that hilarious. well, well, because Dennis Weaver's character I think is is very three dimensional in this and and I love when um, you complicate something mm-hmm. because because we all have good and bad sides mm-hmm. of us right and so it's really important to reflect that and I think James Ferentino it's his best performance oh, I think yeah. in family since that I've seen but like just briefly if your listeners haven't seen the film it's about this couple that are kind of i don't know if he's abusive abusive but he's got a lot of problems and he's he's a little aggressive and they've got these two kids and one of the kids the older one has something kind of he's things aren't connecting right and he's kind of getting ignored even though he's done these really horrific things like i think he killed an animal at school and the teacher tells the parents and it's it's sort of like what looks right makes it right so if we don't act on these things it'll go away and then they go out to this lake and this horrific accident happens and i won't say much more than that because i think people need to see the film and and james ferentino plays this very unlikable person that has a lot of likable traits Mm. and 
And it's, uh, I've never seen him like quite like that. But speaking of dynasty, he came off a of dynasty, right? And he was famous on that. And so I know him as more of an over the top kind of performer, mm-hmm. dead and buried, um, the possessed, like a lot of those movies. He's, and that's what makes him so good. But in this movie, he's really under the radar. And, um, and it's such an intriguing performance because like you talk about how the movie makes you work, you really have to work with that because you're constantly being pulled back and forth on how you feel about this man and how complicit is he in these things that have happened yep. um, that have destroyed his family. And, um, and it's harrowing. Mm-hmm. It's a harrowing film. Yes. And, um, and it's, it's doing all this amazing stuff. And when I was watching Intimate Strangers, I actually thought of Family Sense quite a bit. They're two totally different films, but I think that the, the lead actors are doing something really important and they're doing it very well. Yeah. They may not be that different as I think about it. If you think about Ferentino and Dennis Weaver, there's some similarities, don't you think, there and there as actors in a way? No? Uh, I think, yeah, I think so, because I, I'm used to Dennis Weaver being a little over the top, too. And, and I don't mean that to diminish his talent, but yeah. like, not certainly not on McCloud, but like in like, um, <laughs> right. don't be afraid of the dark, not don't be afraid of the dark, I'm sorry, don't go to sleep yeah. is a very like over the top performance, but that's also perfectly played because that's a, a movie about a family dealing with the loss of a child. And there are very raw moments in that and in that rawness, and he's an alcoholic in it. In that moment, he it all comes out because he's the man, right? Because I made a note about toxic okay. masculinity and the kind of roles that Dennis Weaver played in the telefilm. And the other movie that came to mind was Cocaine, One Man's Seduction, right? Oh, I and love that film. That's yeah, a great. wonderful it's great. film. Oh and that's God, also that a, a very over-the-top performance. But yeah. but when I say over-the-top, oh, yeah. I mean it's big, but it has to be big because he's this guy that's losing everything. Yeah. And, um, and it's a larger-than-life problem that he sort of brought on himself. And so he portrays it that way. And I'm not, and that's kind of how I I'm used to him in these sort of dramas and yeah. so this movie he's very understated and so is james Tarantino, right oh, yeah. so yes well cocaine man seduction is better than the boost with james woods no i haven't seen the boost so i couldn't oh, say but i think it's a great film you know, yeah that what i mean is that here is this little tv movie it's not as famous as the boost with james woods and um sean oh, young yeah. that movie gets all the awards and acclaim but the real movie about the effects of cocaine is this little TV movie that Dennis Weaver was in in the early 80s. It just goes to show you, you know, sometimes sometimes the TV movies are the ones bringing it, you know, is again, which, <laughs> which, you, which you know to be true, right? Yeah, oh, well, for so, sure. They, yeah. they don't always end well. They yeah. do, I think as the years went on, after we got out of the 70s, I think the movies tended to like to have happy endings. But yeah. in that those early days, yeah. you know, there's just, you weren't sure what was going to happen to everybody. And so that's what was part of the pleasure of those films. And to be fair, 70s movies in general were kind of like that. Because like, I always think about, do you remember in the 90s when there was like the revival of the disaster film and like Volcano came out and Dante's Peak? And they were huge and they're fun. But you always knew watching Twister that Bill Paxton was going to make it to the end of the film at Helen Hunt. Like, you didn't question it, but you watch Earthquake or The Towering Inferno oh, or Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, no idea were, those yeah and, and so there was so much suspense in that, and they didn't mind killing these really famous actors in these films, you know, and, and, and you were shocked by the end of the movie. And so I think it's the 70s TV movie was following that pattern, so so you didn't always get out alive. Nope. And, um, and that made them super memorable that way, you know? And I appreciate that. Yeah, it would be really a great purgative after watching Intimate Strangers to watch uh, Valerie Harbour and Dennis Weaver in the Day the Loving Stop. Did you, are you, are you? Do you know, I have never seen that, but I know of it for sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> a TV movie you haven't you haven't seen all of them yet. But you're No, there's like 5,000 of them. I've seen like 600 maybe. So I'm working my way to them. That's all. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What, what was it like uh, doing a Charlie's Angels episode with two people who were not Charlie's Angels fans? Well, I didn't know that going in. And I, yeah. I think it, um, it was great because, yeah. you know, I, the more I love Charlie's Angels, the more I love it. And so that they were so open to it. I just assumed they'd seen the show because I thought everybody had seen it. That was in our age group, right? So, yeah, but a lot, but, of, um, people, a lot of people aren't even like, I'm a fan, like you're a fan in a way of that. But a lot of people don't even didn't register. Just sort of like, yeah. So I guess you're, I guess you're spreading the word, right, by doing that show. I'm, tr- I'm trying to. Trying to. Hey, well, you know, Charlie's Angels is a special kind of series, though, too, because, like, um, it they've tried to recreate Charlie's Angels over and over again, like yep. in the movies with um, um, Drew Barrymore, and then they've mm-hmm. had a couple of different TV series attempts. And there was one, I think, in the 80s that never even made it to air, or if it did, <laughs> it was just a pilot movie with Tay Leone. Wow. And then later on, there was that one that only lasted like a couple episodes that was just recently in the last 10 years. Wow. And um, and they're constantly trying to get that lightning in a bottle. So even though I think Aaron Spelling felt was sort of disparaged by it because he got the nickname, you know, Jiggle TV or whatever. That's the show that everybody like in his entire career, it's his most successful show, he said in his book, but also the show that I think a lot of people remember the most. And, um, and that's because shows like family were dealing with really important issues, but Charlie's Angels was doing the same thing, but in a really entertaining way. And so it could be watched a number of different ways. And it made, I think those types of series and movies, are more enduring, I think, than other types of movies and TV shows. Well, Aaron Spelling was so conscious of all that, right? Yeah, oh, for sure he was. Yeah, I think so. Just brilliant in vision and inventiveness to do that. I mean, the fact that he did both Family and Charlie's Angels is in itself, you know, that shows you the man, right? It tells you the the nature of the, you know the diversity that came out of him and that you're right because like when he created honey west i mean we look at honey west and we're like oh my god Anne francis is so beautiful and look at all this fun stuff but she was really one of the first female leads in that kind of series mm-hmm. and so like and he was setting out to do that because he had been told that women can't lead a show like that and he was like i don't believe that mm-hmm. and i'm gonna prove you wrong and it took him a while to really build the formula to, to where he got with Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. But like um, he was definitely working Mod Squad. You know, mm-hmm. they wanted Peg Lipton in there. You know, I mean, he, he really understood um, that he was inserting progressive ideologies into mainstream programs and that people were consuming them and learning things from them. Yeah, for sure. It's really a shame in the case of Charlie's Angels because I think people that don't get the show are people that actually haven't watched the show. They, yeah, I would agree. They, they have a they have an idea about the show that was fed to them by somebody that's actually totally yeah, disconnected so. from the show. 
Yeah, because, they, you know, it's you can't say that they're not beautiful women and sometimes they wear sexy clothes, but that wasn't really like the heart of the show, you know. And so I feel like, yeah, I feel like people look at the superficialness of it. And I think you're right. This sort of idea of like how it was being portrayed in the press yeah. probably like influenced opinions on it. And that's unfortunate because yeah. it's a really damn good show. Yeah, but also part, part of it, too, is I think that that beauty aspect of it is actually one of the strengths of the show. Because the whole the whole premise of that show is that these are these are uh, figures that are really everything at one time. They're doing you know they're doing these these police activities and they're they're they wanted to wanted to be everything. Wouldn't you say say so? Yeah, well, they were they were definitely autonomous and like they didn't have love interests that really filtered into often in the show. Yeah. Um, and I think it was the best way at the time for Aaron Spelling to get a show like that. I mean, I'm maybe this is a really broad statement that I can't back up with any facts, but maybe without Charlie's Angels, we wouldn't have had Cagney and Lacey, right? So, like, you have to you have to start somewhere, and sometimes to start somewhere, you have to have. Uh, you have to mainstream these things until they become normalized, and then when they become normalized, then you can start inserting other types of things into the formula, right? And then people are already used to it, and then they're they're more likely to acquiesce to it or to consume it in a different way, a more positive way. Yeah, I mean that's the nature of, I guess, producing something when you have when you have a goal or a vision. Like I guess Aaron Spelling had, he had a vision that he wanted to. You know, he, he thought big, right? He wanted to sort of change television. He wanted to do something, right? He, he didn't like to be told no. He didn't, The last thing he wanted is anybody tell him, you can't yeah. do this, you can't do that, and people don't want this and don't want that. He, he wants to, he, wants, he has vision. He wants to, you know, create something. Yeah, he also you had know? compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. Like he, and I talked about it on my own podcast, but he liked... He was very sympathetic to older actors um, losing out on work because they just turned a certain age. And he was very sensitive to that. And so he used a lot of his episodic programs to bring on a lot of these older actors. And his TV movies clearly did that as well. And um, and so, yeah, he thought big, but he also was like, there. everything he does has like this sort of humanity to it, to me. And um, and that's what I always see when I watch his stuff. Yeah, he never he never forgets his, his background, his experiences. He wants to put them in his... You know, growing up as he did and what he experienced as a young as a young man as a kid, he brings all that yep. with him to the to to the projects he does. Yeah, he's he's just a really important kind of underrated uh, television figure for me. Absolutely. So going going back to Intimate Strangers, is there anything else you want to say about Larry Hagman or Tyne Daly or about? Um, uh, well, I mean, everybody's at the top of their game. And um, and I think Larry Hagman, like I said this earlier, is is just as good oh, yeah. as Dennis Weaver because oh, yeah. he's also a complicated character, right? So he's not Amazing. good to his wife, like because he cheats on her, mm -hmm. but he's also not an abuser. And the fact that the universe that Dennis Weaver's character exists in, he just assumes that there's abuse going on because Larry Hagman jokes about it, but he it's so normalized for him because of his father, right? Yeah. And um. And that's another thing they do is they spend time with Dennis Weaver's past, which is really important as well. And um, and so when at the end of the film, when he's talking to Larry Hagman and he's like, I don't remember exactly how he words it, but he's basically telling Larry Hagman, yes, I beat my wife. I mean, doesn't everybody, you know, yeah. And Larry Hagman's like, I I'm going to get up off the stool and I'm not going to talk to you anymore because yeah. I, no, but that's not a normal thing. And no, we don't do that. And um, and it's really interesting because he does cheat on his wife, right? So that com it complicates him. And I like that. And I like Larry Hagman's performance, too. Oh, yeah. 
you know, it's it's just really top-notch stuff. I like Tyne Daly a lot in it as well, but I don't know that she's ever been bad in anything. So, <laughs> like, she's just top sure, of her well, game Well, she's incapable of giving a bad performance. Yes, yeah. you know, and, and she's got this quality to her. Amazing. Like, when she first comes on screen, you just really like her. She reminds me a little bit of um, Zora Lampert. Huh. And um, Zora, Zora, they even have the same smile. But Zora Lampert is when I saw Let's Scare Jessica Death, which is the first thing I saw her in. Hmm. Um, I instantly was drawn to her, and I instantly kind of loved her without even knowing anything about her. And um, and she's just got this presence and this sort of attractiveness to her that I I, I just find her appealing. And Tyne Daly is also appealing in the same way. They just have a quality to them that draws you to them mm-hmm. and that kind of makes you just like them instantly. And, um, and so she's great for this role, but even she's like complicated too because mm-hmm. it's like she's a friend and she's a really good friend when it comes to standing up to the husband. But when it comes to giving uh, Sally Struthers all, the ultimate compassion that she needs because she may go back, she doesn't have it in her oh. to like to like approach things that way. You know, like she's like, it's all black and white for her and she can't figure out why oh. this woman would return. And a lot, a lot of us are thinking the same thing. But like... Um, it complicates her performance too because she's supposed to be her friend, you know, and and ultimately she kind of lets her down. I think that's interesting. That's so what that happens in the in the last act, right? You see that there's a little bit of a she's going to get she's going to the house to get the toothbrush, and there's that amazing scene where she talks to him and says, "I know a dozen women that would have loved to have married you or got you know thrown someone under the bus to get close to you." Right when she confronts him, look what a mess look what you've done. Really great scene, getting getting the toothbrush. Yeah. But at the same token, there's a limit to her sympathies or her friendship. And and where do you see that? And it's an interesting observation. Where does that happen? Well, I don't. Yeah. I think I see it as that's just how we are. Because if we don't experience, right. I feel it's empathy, right? If we don't experience somebody else's problems, sometimes it's hard for us to understand them. And also, we have these preconceived notions right. about what they should do. And yes, she should leave that house. I mean, he's doing horrible things to her and it goes beyond just beating her. I mean, he rapes her. And and to us, that's the most horrific thing in the world, but it's her ultimate decision, how she has to handle her life. And as a friend, Mm -hmm. you can, you can help her learn how to get out of the house or do what she needs to do to survive. But you also have to be there for her if she doesn't do it. And I don't know how you do that, but but I feel like as a friend, you have to try to extend yourself in some way. And I don't know that Tyne Daly's character necessarily had it in her, but I think she understood it too. I mean, they talked about it. They talked and, um, about it, but I, but I guess what I was, because I didn't, I misremembered that part of the movie. I didn't see, you were sensitive just to, I guess, a limitation on Tyne Daly's part. And I guess I was asking you informationally, were that, were that? Oh, when they're in the car together. The car. Um, okay. I don't even remember where they're going, but um, she's either picked her up from the hospital or something, and they're sitting in a car and they're having the conversation. Yeah. And um, Sally Struthers is very delicately and very maturely kind of trying to say, this is my life. Mm. And I need to make my own decisions. And Tyne Daly has like rolled up the window on that. You know, she's like, no, this guy is horrible and I don't understand it. But, but the very fact that she doesn't understand it it's like she can't extend herself past that moment. Uh, you know what I mean? And so, um, and so it sort of complicates her, not as much as like the Larry Hagman character, yeah. but it does complicate her. Yeah, it's difficult because it presents the audience with an ethical uh, conundrum. And that's what, For sure. Yeah, and that's ethical. So a lot, you can, in the audience, you're like, well, I've been in her shoes and 
you know, the ethical conundrum of do I conduct an intervention? You know, do I force somebody for their own good, right? That spirit of like, you know, what are the, what are the limits of friendship or what are the, right? What are the boundaries? Well, can you, can you even force her though? Because I mean, at this stage of, um, society, like there were very, like, so there's a little bookended, um, voiceover narration where they talk about how few shelters there were. And at the time, I think only 14 states had funded shelters yeah. by like funded by the state. And so like, like there's only so much that Tyne Daly's character could have done legally. Yeah. Right. With what the end Sally Struthers, I mean, they were doing the most that they could, but even she was told that it's not really rape because they're married or whatever. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're seeing this brick wall. And so like, so like, even if, so you're saying an intervention, but I think that's an intervention in, in 2020 eyes. I just don't know 1978 if they even understood what they could do, but, but you can be someone's friend. Sure. You know? Sure. And, but I guess, the, and I don't, yeah, they get the, without judgment. Well, the fact that the TV movie kind of brings that up for the audience is really something. In other words, that that becomes in the film a question to reflect on. Uh, you know, you can ask yourself, well, what is a friend, or what is friendship? You know, what is what is virtue? You know, what you know those kinds of very sort of almost uh, kind of nerdy, kind of philosophic questions. You know, put put framed in that kind of way. But even just general questions, like yeah. like uh, uh, like if you if you knew Dennis Weaver just in the real world as that character and you didn't know what was going on in his home life, you would like Dennis Weaver. Like, there's yeah. nothing dislikable about his That's persona right. outside the house for the most part. That's and so, like, it, you struggle with it. It makes me think of um, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. That's a great, because great. you know the little girl in that has been raped by her father, yeah. but there's a whole Toni Morrison spends like at least one chapter telling the love story of her parents mm. and before it all falls apart. And it's this really sweet story. Mm. And, and then he goes on to be, do these horrific things. And it's because people are, I keep using that phrase, but people are complicated. And so this yeah. film is really trying to show you complexities that everybody has. And, and when you say question these things, there are these philosophical questions, but then there's just like the, questions that the film itself is presenting with just battered women, mm -hmm. you know, like, why would she go back? Why, why can't she be a better friend? Or is it better that she's this way? Why is Larry Hagman joke about beating women? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But he cheats on his wife and, and what does that make him, mm -hmm. you know, and that he has some kind of moral virtue here, but not here. Like, why is that? And, um, and why is Dennis Weaver, seem like this okay person most not at the party obviously that's a, you really really starting to come out there the dennis weaver uh, from the home but like why do i like this guy who beats the crap out of his wife all the time and rapes her and you know what i mean and so it's yeah. like it's it's like it's doing all of these different things and it's it's so that you can understand all the different sides yeah. and it's also you're never going to come to a proper conclusion about society or humanity or the yeah. human condition if you don't understand all the different perspectives either so yeah i guess that's one of the functions of of a, of a commercial narrative like like an image strangers right it's i would think way, so it's especially way, soap yeah. operas because soap operas can introduce um um a lot of different perspectives. TV movies have to do it in a, a shorter, like it's short. That's where shorthand yeah. really comes into play, right? So, um, and sometimes it fails. Like, so going back to Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, that's a really interesting one because that's a movie that's a metaphor about what it's like when you're forced to be a housewife and you don't want to, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like the yellow wallpaper um, 
in a TV movie, right? With little monsters in your fireplace. But it's like, it's like, when does that drive you insane? And so Jim Hunt's character, like, he's not nearly as complex as Dennis Weaver, but like, it's introducing things about both sides of the family, like, you know, about how they ended up in the situation that they're in and why is he the way he is and like these stresses in life and like how, how the pressure changes us or makes us a certain way. Like I'm getting off topic here, but like, so all these TV movies are dealing with things like in metaphor, but they're all dealing with issues within the domestic space and, and they could be coded like in a horror movie, Mm. but, um, and then they could be told right in your face, like here. But I think at the heart of it, they're trying to basically reflect America as we knew it. Mm. Yeah, they're they're doing that. So in that sense, don't be afraid of the dark. It is very similar, and not at all off topic. It's very connected. Um, in in some ways, yeah, he's not beating know. the crap out of her, but th- no, it's like. But it's connected in this in this larger sense of what the film's actually really about. Yeah, like for the, sure. Yeah, the film is about being trapped in a house, even spiritually. Um, yes, you you could say that that's almost as bad as Intimate Strangers. Or you could say, you know, not without exactly being as bad, right? It's it's a form. You know, you could say that's a, that's a that's a problem, right? To to be to be. It's a it's a um, form of oppression. Yeah, oppression. it's like yeah. it's yeah. So it's looking at like what happens when you've been forced to conform to a certain kind of life that maybe you don't want to conform to, you know. And and so I mean, obviously, it becomes a monster movie. So I don't know that the themes stick out as much but like there's another one that i was talking about it's called the strange possession of mrs oliver mm-hmm. with karen black about oh, a woman who's a housewife and she wants to get like a part-time job like at a store yeah. and her husband played by george hamilton is like no you're gonna get pregnant and you're gonna stay yeah. here and of course so she's george hamilton to- would do it's yes yeah he's perfect and so she goes she goes shopping one day and she sees a sweater and this wig and she puts it on. And when she puts it on, she transforms herself. Mm. And then this other Mrs. Oliver ends up going to this little town. She doesn't even know why she's going there, why she's drawn there. There's a whole mystery to it. And she starts doing these things yeah. and she's living a different life. And, and so the movie is a mystery about what happened in Mrs. Oliver's past yeah. that is been hidden, but it's also about what is, what happens to a woman when she's being forced to, to live as a housewife when she doesn't want to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting. So yeah, it's not as brutal. Like he's not beating her up or hurting her that way, but but she's still oppressed in a different yeah. way. Yeah, I guess it's that general sense of oppression. All these films we're talking yeah. about are actually, in that sense, they're all, they're kind of all really kind of serious movies. They're serious, they mean business. They're not, you know, again, yeah. stereotypically we write off these TV movies, oh, it's for television or it's for commercial, but these they mean business. They have, you know, they have integrity. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're about something, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially George Hamilton. I haven't thought of him in a long time. <laughs> we did a lot of these interesting TV movies. He's in another one called, um, he's on Death, Car on he's on Death Car on the Freeway. Death Car on the Yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the oppressive he is the ex-husband. Oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants his wife to not really like have a career and um and he's not a bad guy in it but like he's he's living in this 
generation right before hers, right? And mm-hmm. where like he's being told, you know, his life has been like the wife stays at home and she does this and she does that. And and then Shelley Hack's character is like the generation after where she's like, no, I want a career. And so you see where the tension comes. They love each other and he's mm-hmm. not a bad person, but he's living in a in a past world and he wants her to conform to it, you know, and it's interesting. It's and it's in Death Car on the Freeway for frick's sake, you know, like, yeah, well, like it's yeah, crazy. Well, Death Car on the Freeway, exactly. Death Car on the Freeway is not just an action picture by any stretch no. of the imagination. No, <laughs> it's, it's like amazing. There. It is amazing. And George Hamilton's amazing. Do you have a favorite George Hamilton? Anybody, uh, or is that... Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know but that I've seen him starring in a lot of stuff. I see him in these little TV movies, but I, and even though his part isn't huge, I love The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver. Okay. And he's really interesting in it because I'm used to him being this kind of chiseled, yeah. um, sort of really self-aware kind of, um, cartoony looking guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love in, in, um, The Strange Possession, Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver, He's not that at all. Like, you know, you can kind of see where the actor is in him. And so I think he does really good in that. Yeah, it's him doing those, doing that, which I guess he doesn't do often, right? Or like, that's how he stereotyped. Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, how we're supposed to see him. And he plays up that role all the time. He loved being like the extra tan, yeah. you know, ascot wearing, handsome guy, you know, and he, and he, and he was good in comedies, you know, yes. like Love at First Bite, of course, yeah. and things like Zorro the Gay Blade, you know, mm-hmm. but also he could do other things. And so the TV movie kind of allowed him to do that. Yeah. TV movies, do, TV movies did that for Robert Reed, right? We talked about that, this <laughs> secret night caller. And, and my, 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 my everything. I don't even know how to word Robert Reed. Yeah, TV movies really, if anybody wants to discover what a great actor Robert Reed is, they need to go through his TV filmography and watch every single film he made because they're all incredible. Now, am I to understand that you recently had a dream about Burt Convy? <laughs> I did, but I don't remember the dream. I just know he was in it. And um, it's not unusual for me to dream about Burt Convy, I don't think. a lot, okay. Yeah, I mean, I love him. Yeah. He's also a very good actor, you know, and like, um, again, he has this persona of being like this goofy, fun loving guy. But like in a lot of TV movies, he played very serious characters and um, and sometimes jokey characters. But he did um, he did a movie with Robert Reed called Thou Shall Not Commit Adultery. And um, and he's this Lothario in it and he's just sleazy. And it's hilarious to see him in that part because I'm used to him just being like this really sweet guy. But um, he's very good in it. That's one I have not seen. I have to see that. It's flawed, um, but the acting is pretty good. And it's got Wayne Rogers. Oh, my God. Um, three. Louise, Rogers, Fle- Louise Fletcher. Louise Fletcher's? Yes. Oh, I yeah, she's. That. It's a good cast. Um, but I don't think, it's, I don't think it's, it's fully realized. But, you know, it's worth a viewing for sure. Oh, sure. I, I bet, I've never seen it. It's, that went under my radar. Yeah, it was one of um They were going to make a, a whole bunch of Thou Shalt Not movies, and they did that one, and I think they did one called Maybe Thou Shalt Not Kill, which I haven't seen. There's a second one. Oh, and they only did the two, and then they never continued with them. So it's it was part of a potential series that never was fully realized, like, possibly because it wasn't that great. It, it had a lot of flaws in the final product. <laughs> like a Ten Commandments type, type series or something? Yeah, but like with modern contemporary Temporary. problems, right? And so it's kind of an interesting approach. Yeah. But like, yeah, it didn't it didn't make it past those two films. Yeah. 
I guess it's it's, it's del- a delicate balance, comedy and drama, right? Are you going to do it? Which way are you going to do it? Right? Yeah. Because you could do any of those topics comedically. You could. Um, they went like really melodramatic, I think, with mm-hmm. it, and um, it's really melodramatic. But the but I like the actors in it quite a bit, and and you know it's definitely worth. I think all TV movies are worth a watch, and mm-hmm. that's certainly one of them. You know. Wayne Rogers. Wow. I love him. What are some What are some other uh, some other uh, projects in in your do we which you can have projects in this time that we're in? Uh, I have a couple, but they haven't been announced yet, so I can't really say what they are. But um, I have two things that are coming up. But the, I guess the last thing I did that they did announce that I'm really proud of is um, I wrote the liner notes for um, Arrow's home video release or Blu-ray of uh, The Last Starfighter, which is coming out in October. Oh, okay. And that's a very special film for me. Um, and I was really happy to write about it. Uh, and it, it's kind of hilarious because, well, uh, so Lance guest stars in that. And I've actually interviewed Lance guest for my blog and, um, I don't know him very well or anything, but he's a real nice guy, but like literally like a week before I got contacted and offered the chance to write the liner notes, I made a joke about how, if I wrote the liner notes for last starfighter, it would be about how I should be Lance guest's wife. Oh, and I, I made a joke, and then literally like a week later, I get contacted, and they're like, "Would you like to write the liners?" Of course, that's not what I wrote about, but um, um, it was just funny. It's it's one of those dream projects, you know, like when you're a teenager and you see a movie and it kind of influences you, mm-hmm. and you you never think at when you're 13 that you're gonna do something that's involves that film in some meaningful way, you know. And so, um, I was really pleased with that, and I guess uh, before that, earlier in the year, um. Uh, my uh, writing partner, Bill Ackerman, um, and I did a book uh, about Al Adamson's films, which came out with the Al Adamson box set oh. uh, through Severin. And um, it's like a 126-page book, which is sort of uh, wow. a guide to the production history of Al Adamson's films, which was quite something because if you're familiar with Al Adamson, you know that he shoots things under multiple titles and then releases them under multiple titles. He sometimes edits his films. He'll take two different films and edit them together and release it as a separate film. (laughs) And um, he does all kinds of stuff. And so tying all of the information together was a really fascinating project. And and I love Al Adamson's films. They're great. And then, um, and then Bill and I also did the commentary for a, Kino Lorber's release of Pray for the Wildcats. This is a TV movie as well. Right. And that was really fun. Well, to, to, to uh, an audience member who's never heard of Al Adamson, what would you say that's, if they have to see their first Al Adamson, Al Adamson picture, what are you going to steer them towards? They don't know who. Okay, that's when. that's tough for me because I want to say Dracula versus Frankenstein because that's his most famous film, and I really enjoy that movie. Mm-hmm. But I think his two best movies mm-hmm. are Black Heat, and I think that any black exploitation movie that Al Adamson did is worth seeing. They're all very good. Mm-hmm. Or he did this really weird family movie towards the end of his film career called Carnival Magic. Oh. And Carnival Magic is, is is about the anti-vivisection subplot and the monkey. And yeah, things. yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. with the with the talking chimp. Oh, yeah. The chimp saying, oh, well, the, the chimp has, basically has two words. He says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or something. All oh, right. Yeah. Like he also says something about coconuts when he's got the woman's yeah. bra and he goes, coconuts. And right. it's this weird movie. But if you took out the talking chimp, oh, like man. you made him not talk and – which, because once he starts talking, you're like, this is, I don't even know what I'm looking at. But like, it's actually a really sweet film about learning when to let go of someone you love. 
It is. And yeah. there's all these different storylines story about letting go of somebody and how do you do it yeah. and um, and when is it right to do it. Yeah. And and so with the, when I saw it, I was like really impressed with it. And Al Adamson, so Al Adamson was murdered. I, and I um, forgot that he directed that. So thanks for reminding me. I, mean, yeah. I want to go kind of a magic vividly. Yeah, he was, um, he was, it was a work for hire, but I mean, there was a lot of people involved that he normally worked with. He worked with the same kind of cast of players for a lot of his films. He used the same crew and stuff. And, um, Sam Sherman produced a lot of his films. Um, but like, I don't think he produced Carnival Magic, but he worked with him a lot. So, um, Al Adamson, about three or four months before he died, he did an interview, uh, maybe it's in Wild Beyond Belief, I can't remember, but they uh, were talking to him and, and he said that Carnival Magic was a movie that he, came to really love and appreciate. And he thought it was, I don't know if he said it was one of his better films, but um, he really liked it. And later, years later, he revisited it mm-hmm. and and really ended up liking it a lot. And um, he did another family film around the same time. These were like his last two films. He did a movie called Lost mm-hmm. with the same guy who starred in Carnival Magic. And um, oh my God, what's her name? She's so famous, Sandra D. Oh. And yeah, and it was one of Sandra Dee's last films too, and it's not—it's not as good. It's not as good, but it's interesting that he would go on to do family films because his movies were exploitation, you know, and um, like these biker movies like Angels, Wild Women, and Black Heat, and Death mm-hmm. Dimension, and um, uh, Mean Mother, you know, and Dracula versus Frankenstein, and uh, Blood of the Ghastly Horror. Like they're—they're they're not at all like the last couple films he made, but they're charming, you know. And he was a really interesting filmmaker. Well, my my favorite would be Carnival Magic. I don't. You're in Austin, Texas, and I know that in the big cities in this country back in the day, a few years ago, Ca- Carnival Magic was a big midnight. Um, yeah, repertory movie. Was it in Austin as well? Were they showing that? Well, that was before it got here. But the guy who actually rediscovered Carnival Magic and got it on the circuit lives here in Austin. His name's Zach Carlson, okay. and his story is in my book. But and I think he also did the commentary on one of the discs. Maybe it was Carnival Magic. So what happened was he worked at a movie theater and one day they they were like the people who ran the theater were like we're closing down and you have no notice and you guys are all out of a job and so they kind of looted the theater him and his buddies and they found a film reel for like a can and it had carnival magic written on it oh, wow. and he took it with him and he would show it at different places but he would show it like when bands were playing and stuff and yeah. so nobody realized that the monkey talked Oh, wow. And so so one day he just was watching it. He was somewhere and he was like, oh, my God, this is the craziest thing. And so he brought it to Austin when he moved here and he um, had the uh, whoever was running Weird Wednesday at the time. That might have been Lars. I can't remember. And he had Lars show it at the Alamo and it ended up becoming this huge thing. And then it kind of started spreading out from there. But, yeah, the genesis of its discovery actually was here in Austin. Well, that's something to be proud of. I did not know that. So it's not even just it's before Lars. Lars is later on on the um, on the story. Yeah, it has has roots in, I guess, uh, film theater closing. So, yeah, and I think that was in Seattle or Portland, wow. somewhere in Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so it traveled here, yeah. and then it, then it kind of got discovered from there. Yeah, and it became a big thing. Yeah, it's, but I love it. I can't yeah. recommend it enough. Yeah, it's it's not. I don't know if it's for everybody. I mean, kind of. A magic. <laughs> it's a weird one. It's a weird one. But uh, you know, it's interesting because, like, they did play at the theater here uh, recently when I was writing the book. So it was perfect oh, timing, and I went yeah. and saw it on the big screen. And it was the audience interpretation of it and acceptance of it was really nice because it is a goofy movie and it's strange. Yeah. But like at the end, we were all kind of emotionally attached to that oh, freaking. Yeah. 
chimp. Oh. And like, <laughs> and there's that scene where Markov, uh, the human that takes care of him, yep. is holding um, Alex the chimp. And what's so interesting about it is Al Adamson got the camera shot kind of off. <laughs> so Markov and the and the chimp are sort of not in the frame properly. Right. But for whatever reason, to me, that's the most moving image in the film. Yeah. And I think it was an accident that he caught it that way. Yeah. But it really worked, you know, and, and it just... It's just a good movie. I just really liked it. Well, it gives a documentary feel to the shooting, right? It's interesting, sure, interesting yeah. thing about 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 that film is that it's it is sort of an action movie, but it you know it ends up having this documentary. Yeah, well, it's just it's got a lot of heart in it, and um, it's just sweet. I just really liked it. I was very taken the with it. The car chase is amazing. Oh, my God, the car chase is awesome. I think the girl, yeah, that girl that's in the back of the car, this was like the only movie he did or she did. And I think it actually says at the beginning of the film, introducing so-and-so is like girl in car. Yeah. I wish they had put her in more movies, but, you know, what can I, what can I, can I tell She's like, she's just like yelling, there's a chimp driver, whatever she does. It's just hilarious. She thinks it's her boyfriend. She looks over and there's this chimp driver in the car. It's so weird. It's such a it's such an interesting. All of Adamson's movies are kind of like that. They're interesting. Like they're they're not going to be what you're expecting. Yeah. <laughs> so you got all you got to talk to him for your book. Oh, that's good. No, Al Adamson oh. died. Oh, so. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, he was murdered in the um, 90s. Oh and um, and so the guy who runs Severin did made a documentary about him. And, and so he just decided to put as many of the movies he could get the rights to in a box set. And so he released this amazing box set that came out earlier this year with our book. Well, that's that's important. I like the, yeah. I like the people to get that. And, and uh, where should they get it? They go to Amazon or go to... Um yeah, they can go to Amazon because it sold out through Severin. So I, it might be a little harder to find. It actually sold. I couldn't believe how fast it sold because it was $170. Wow. But it's also for like 31 films. So it's not so bad. Yeah. It's for true, the true uh, Adam, Al Adamson aficionados. Yes. <laughs> or aficionados to be to because be it's, a complete, it's as complete as it'll ever be. So. <laughs> Well, Amanda Reyes, it's been really great talking with you. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, it's our second time doing this. Um, are there any movies that you want to discuss? I picked Intimate Strangers in the future. Is there a movie that you say, I want to do this film? Emphatically. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I mean, there's a lot of movies I want to talk about. Yeah. I'm trying to think if any stick out. Because we, you know, we were to kind of discuss Family Sins. Mm-hmm. So um, that might be an interesting one. But But we've kind of done it. I'll have to think about it. Well, I'm up for. I'm definitely up for family sins. Oh, cool! Uh, I'm up for the day the loving stop because it's Valley Harper oh, and Dennis Weaver. Yeah, I haven't seen that. So I totally would see that. Then let's do that one. Okay. We'll make it the day loving stop. I think it's eighty one. I think eighty two. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting because they did uh, don't go to sleep together as well. You know, and um, that's why I know of the day the loving stops because they did two TV movies together. Um, but I just haven't. It just kind of has slipped me since. Um, my discovery of it. Well, Amanda, thank you again for being on this podcast and be safe thank out you. there in Austin. You too. And I look forward to discussing uh, the day love and stop next time we meet. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Mm-hmm.